The thing that really makes it a museum is that meeting between me and the person and the conversations that we have about sound and listening during their visit. It's the conversations where I think the person who's visiting really starts to have meaning being made for them personally. They start to, if, if they're not familiar with the world of sound or the, the world of listening closely, they really almost unanimously, they start to think of all these important sounds that they've experienced in their life that they never really stopped to think about that much. And now they suddenly realize like, oh my God, I need to listen to the world a little closer. Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. My name is Paul Reismandel. And I'm Jennifer Waits. Today we're celebrating a birthday. Something is 25 years old. And that something isn't internet radio. It's already older than 25 years, although we've been talking about it quite a bit. I know. We've been covering that birthday, too. <laughs> it, that thing is the MP3, the lowly music format or not so lowly music format that we all take for granted that in some ways seems like it's been with us forever, but we can say now has met, has met that quarter century mark. In fact, July the 14th of 2020 marks the 25th anniversary and birthday of the MP3. Um, and to help us celebrate that, uh, we're talking to the director and chief curator of the Museum of Portable Sound. His name is John Cannonberg. And the museum itself is fascinating. On the museum's website, he's put together an exhibit, a really a museum exhibit, celebrating and, and marking uh, the history of the MP3. And it's easy to overlook the MP3. Uh, I think it, it seems, you know, it's almost like water for the internet, at least if you, if you like sound and music. But I think for that very reason, it's, it's interesting to, to dive into it. Yeah, and let's uh, take a listen to that interview right now. We're pleased to welcome John Cannonberg, who is the director and chief curator of the Museum of Portable Sound in London, England. And uh, John does join us from the UK. And, and we're here specifically to talk about a new virtual online exhibition um, that the Museum of Portable Sound has up uh, called MP3 at 25. And, and what that implies is that the MP3 is 25 years old. So so thank you for joining us, John. And, and what I wanted to start here is uh, what is the event? What marks the birth of the MP3. Thanks very much for, for having me to, to both of you as well. Um, in terms of the, the event, it really comes down to the moment that, um, that Fraunhofer, the research facility in Germany that basically created the MP3, they did all the, all the fine tuning of the algorithm and, and their team really led the way in the, in the development of it. But it comes down to when the Fraunhofer development team decided on the file extension ah. for the file type. So what happened was they, they had used at least two others. Uh, one was .bit. And one was dot S O N. I don't know if they said it sun or sown, but they knew that both of those were temporary and they had already, they'd already released the encoder to the public. So people were already able to make 
files, but they weren't .mp3 for, I think, almost a year. And then there was an internal email uh, vote that was taken by the staff at Fraunhofer who had worked on the development. And on July 14th of 1995, they decided that .mp3 would be the file extension. So that's considered the birth date. And what, what has prompted you to celebrate this particular anniversary in your museum? Well, uh, my my museum tries to cover any portable sound technology, um, any major portable sound technology that I, at least I'm aware of. And I'm having having sort of lived through the the entire MP3 age from the beginning. I, I thought it was something that could be really fascinating. And mostly uh, it came about because I got contacted to do an interview about it. And I, because I didn't realize the 25th anniversary was coming up uh-huh. uh, <laughs> and someone thought that I would be a good person to speak to about it. And I realized that, well, yeah, I had done quite a bit of research work about the history of the MP3, but I hadn't actually put anything together about it anywhere. And because my museum is sort of uh, unconventional uh, and its exhibitions tend to take different forms depending on what it's covering, it seemed to me like the best way that I could celebrate a quarter century of the MP3 was to make a, an online exhibition of it and cover it in the in the same sort of media format that it was born in and and lived in. You mentioned your museum is unconventional. So could you explain? I'm fascinated by it. And it certainly is unconventional and like no other museum that perhaps I've visited. So what is the (laughs) Museum of Portable Sound? Well, it it started five, a little over five years ago, almost five years ago, sorry, um, in November of 2015. And what it is is a museum of sounds that the entire museum, its collections only exist on one mobile phone, which is a phone that I use. Uh, that, worries no longer... me a li- that worries me a little bit. <laughs> that it's all on one phone. <laughs> it's, it's no longer my primary phone. And uh, the sounds are backed up. That's good. Um, so, but when, when I started the museum, what I, the way people would visit it is they would have to meet me in person and listen to the sounds on my phone. I didn't want to distribute the sounds online anywhere. I didn't want them to be downloadable files. I didn't want anyone sampling them and remixing them. And I also, the most important reason for that was because I was interested in trying to find a way to make recorded sound feel museum quality in a post uh, like Spotify world where you're, where people are used to listening to whatever they want, whenever they want, wherever they want. And most often listening is done as a, as a background to some other activity. And I was interested in making the listening act the foreground activity. So by forcing someone to make an appointment with me and bring their own headphones 
and listen to my phone in person, they have to set aside some time to actually sit down and listen. And the, the way the museum is structured, it's, it's sounds on a phone, it's sound files on a phone, but then there's also a printed book, um, which I happen to have right here. Uh, the, the current edition, this is the third edition now, um, and it's almost 300 pages long, and it's got all the stuff that would usually be on the walls of a regular museum. So they get my phone, they get the book, and there's also a map of the museum. There, there is no real physical architecture, but there's a visual map that shows where all the galleries are in relationship to each other. And that is used by the, the visitors to try to orient themselves and figure out what they want to listen to and where they'd like to go next. I, lo and I love how you make it so tangible because I've heard people talk about uh, digital music sometimes that at least in the early days, people would talk about the fact that you could put it in the trash on your computer, that that somehow mm -hmm. made it seem less important or less tangible than maybe an LP that, you know, is, is going to be around a lot longer. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, there's, in theory. there's such a, yeah, well, there's, I, I would say, I would say easily it's around longer because, um, just in, in preparing for this MP3 exhibition, I went through my own archives and tried to find early MP3s that I had downloaded uh, for evaluation purposes only <laughs> uh, from places like LimeWire. And uh, some of them don't work anymore. Hmm. So, you know. So the files are corrupted. They just don't play. Yeah. They just wow. don't play. So and and um, I actually have uh, a colleague who he found uh, an old MP3 player, a, a pre-iPod MP3 player that he bought back in the day, and he offered to donate it to the museum, and he can't get it to work. Hmm. And I have Walkmans from the 80s that work. I have things that are much older than that that still work. Uh, it's it's really amazing how flimsy and uh, um, sort of unreliable a lot of the the technology was only yeah. twenty five years ago. Yeah, we we've talked to Andrew Bottomley a few times about the history of web radio and podcasting, and and he's talked about how difficult it can be to find some of the earliest recorded sounds, uh, you know, that were done digitally. The, yes. Those are, a lot of those files are just sort of lost or like you're mentioning, hard to read. Mm -hmm. Well, there's just in, in working on this exhibition, obviously most of the, um, the source material that I'd be looking for in terms of news and, and information about the MP3 era would be online. Um, but a lot of it is gone. Mm -hmm. There, there are so many dead links related to the history of MP3s, and even going to the Wayback Machine, you can't get everything. Um, so it's it's really fascinating how this this technology that was supposed to make everything available all the time uh, did such a terrible job of archiving itself. <laughs> So John Kennenberg, uh, you know, you've put together an online exhibition, MP3 at 25, and 
there was online audio prior to the invention of, of the MP3 file, uh, yes. which is, uh, you know, something which, you know, we've talked about very recently on, on Radio Survivor, uh, although it was much less common. Uh, many many few, fewer people had internet access or had it at home. And it often required the kind of access that you, you know, that you would have at a university or a research institute rather than something than the kind of access you would have at home. Um, right. So, but, but, but I'm curious, you know, why, why does the MP3 sort of stand out as, as, as a format to, to celebrate its anniversary of its birth? I think it's probably down to two things. Um, Napster, and the iPod, um, I think those are those are the two key areas that it that the MP3 sort of um, touched upon and uh, really, for lack of a less cheesy way to say it, um, changed the world. Mm-hmm. Really, uh, in in terms of Napster, it, it uh, blew apart the recording industry. Uh, Can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah, because I, I I really wonder, and so I'm going to put this out as a question. Like I, mm-hmm. you know, Napster is pivotal for me, but I'm somebody I'm Generation X. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I and I, I don't know to what extent somebody who is uh, 20 or 25 years old right now. Okay, so it's so younger or as old as the MP3. Uh, to what yeah. extent that they're aware of Napster? Can can you briefly, you know, it, uh, you know, can you briefly tell us? What what was Napster and why did it sort of why was it so disruptive to the recording industry? Sure. Um, well, Napster was a a pioneering peer to peer network, which means uh, computers that were that were able to directly connect to each other over the internet, and they used that connection to share data. In this case, uh, they shared MP3s. And this was the first opportunity that uh, that consumers really had of being able to share something that felt like it was a perfect copy of the music that you would buy in a music store. Mm-hmm. It wasn't. MP3 quality is not equal to CD quality, um, and that's that's a sort of a key semantic issue within the development of the MP3 itself that. It wasn't developed to deliver perfect sound quality. It was delivered to develop CD quality sound. Right. Something near, so, uh, near, near, nearly right. Uh, virtually right. spotless, uh, fresh yes. frozen. <laughs> yeah. Fresh frozen. So, <laughs> so, so because of Napster, people were able to take these digital files that they were able to rip off of compact discs that they had purchased. And, and that was an interesting, it's interesting that that term was used, right? Rip. And yes. you're saying rip off because that was exactly <laughs> the interpretation that the record labels and the artists had was that suddenly there was all this pirating going on. Yes. Yeah. Napster is uh, sort of synonymous with, with the concept of internet pirating. And yes, obviously there was a lot of material being traded for free that people never followed up with buying a physical copy of um, that's absolutely truth. There's that's undeniable, but it really did. Uh, it, it also did act as a very good marketing 
tool for musicians to get their music in front of people. Uh, once people sort of adjusted to Napster as the place to go to, to find new music, they were um, they were using it much like people use YouTube now uh in terms of a way to, to test stuff out before they before they would buy it because initially the the sales of compact discs weren't affected at all and and in fact they started to rise um yeah i mean we're talking yeah. about like 1999 and what yeah. is sort of lost i think for a lot of people is that was sort of peak revenues for the music industry all time right right i mean they they were they were making money off of um, some really cheap bad acts and uh, they were milking it for all they could. And they were, they were able to release just about anything and uh, it was purchased after the initial wave of um, sort of denial from people who had to, to rebuy their entire record collection as compact discs. Once, once you sort of came to grips with the fact that, oh my God, all this vinyl or, or cassettes that I had um, already purchased, I'm going to want to purchase again in order to, to have a, you know, a respectable collection. Um, Once they got over that, then CDs were very desirable because it was, it was a really easily transportable format they did a really good job of making everyone think that CDs would last uh, infinitely long, that they were indestructible. Perfect um, sound forever know. was the uh, tagline. Yes, yes, exactly. That's uh, right. Is not exactly the case, but you know, uh, I, I'm I'm not going to debate the arbitrary standards that uh, were put in place for <laughs> the compact disc. That's not what I'm here to do. Um, it's interesting, but, though, those waves of, you know, I remember that people replacing their collections. And, yeah. and now, decades later, people sad that they gave up their vinyl. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, th- there were there were tons of debates. Like, I, I remember debating with people who had gotten rid of, the, like, they ripped all of their CDs into MP3s and they just trashed them. Right. They sold them off or just threw them out. And I, I couldn't believe that people were doing that. Like it, it just made no sense to me. And I, I, especially like colleagues that I, that I worked with, I knew some people who did that way before I knew anyone else who had, mm-hmm. and they were like, they were completely content. And I was like, Oh my God, how, how can you, how can you do that? Like you don't own it anymore, but they did. I mean, they, they own those MP3s a lot more than we own uh, the stuff we listen to on Spotify. So. Right, but they're a hard disk crash away from losing right. possibly an entire right. entire collection unless they're doing things to mitigate that sort of thing. And as well, that they could be experiencing what you mentioned at the top, uh, John, uh, that they could be going back to files they ripped you know, 15, 20 years ago that, that for, for one reason or another ceased to function. Right, cease to yeah. actually play back any longer, and so you're marking, you know, Napster as as as, a, as this critical juncture in 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 why the MP3 is important, uh, why mm-hmm. it's uh, why it's something worth documenting and celebrating the anniversary of, and 
and and that is because you know essentially I think you said you're saying that you know all of a sudden you know people uh, on the internet across you know the world really could could actively trade music in a way that previously they couldn't you know I mean they could trade cassettes and people did but this opened it up to a massive scale which of course. Um, brought the ire of the music industry and and brought uh, ultimately brought brought down Napster right they were sued out of existence essentially yes. uh, by yes. the music industry um, the other pivotal sort of part of it you mentioned um, is the iPod yeah. tell us a little bit about why what is the significance there of of the iPod well claiming that it's the iPod that's kind of a shortcut mm-hmm. uh, it's really it's really Apple's sort of three-pronged strategy, which was to first release iTunes as a jukebox program. So a, a, just a piece of software that allowed you to play MP3s on your computer and or keep them organized. Then it was the release of the iPod, which happened later the same year. And then early the next year, I believe, I need to double check my dates. That but, sounds right. Uh, uh, they opened the Apple Music Store. And so it was those three products together that took the MP3 from its uh, its sort of reputation of, of piracy and completely legitimized it almost immediately, except the fact that they very quickly then abandoned the format. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, I wondered about that because, I mean, certainly, you know, Playback software, jukebox software existed uh, before iTunes. Winamp, for yeah. instance, was yeah. uh, one yes. of the most popular and well-known. Um, you know, there were MP3 players uh, by yeah. from a number. I still of, have my Diamond Rio somewhere. Wow! Oh, yes. nice, <laughs> nice. They, yeah, they were. That was the that was the second MP3 player ever made. The the Diamond Rio. Right? I should dig that up. And and and. Yeah, I, Sorry, go ahead. I was working in I was working in the um, online music biz around that time. So I mean that's oh, part cool. of it too. Is that um, Napster? You know that signaled kind of this whole proliferation of online music companies trying to figure out all the things we're talking about. Like, yep. do people want to buy digital music or do they want to stream digital music? And you know there were a lot of debates about that. And what is the future? And and sort of like you're saying, I, Apple sort of changed everything where a lot of what we were doing before iTunes gets sort of lost. Yeah. Uh, people don't know much about a lot of those companies um, yes. because it was a little bit early. We were a little bit early. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, the one sort of missing piece, though, right, is that, is that, uh, that the Apple, uh, the iTunes music store brings to bear is that as you sort of mentioned, Jennifer, there really wasn't an easy way to buy digital music, though. You know, and I think that for for many of us as observers, a lot of it had to do with the rights too. Right. Like the place where I worked, mm-hmm. you know, it was very difficult to get um, record labels to sign on and buy into all of it. Right. So I think that's probably where Apple succeeded is that they were able to get those deals going. Well, I think, and I think for music lovers at the time, you know, it felt like a catch 22 on the one hand, uh, the record companies are telling us, you know, and suing, you know, first suing a Napster, but then later going on to sue actual individuals for trading music files online. And on the other hand, they're telling you, but you can't have 
music and digital files, right? You, we, will, we will sell you a CD. Uh, we will sell you, I guess, probably still at the time, maybe a cassette, maybe a record. But that's it. Uh, and so, you know, you can't do what you want legally. And, and, and as we often know, uh, as things go, regardless of whether we're talking about music or, or say, uh, you know, cannabis, um, if people can't do it legally, <laughs> they'll find another, another route. Um, yes. but, so, but I'm curious, John, you know, you know, the, you know, the sequence you lay out, there's iTunes, there's, there's Apple's iPod, then there's Apple's music store. Um, what about the iPod is special compared to say a diamond Rio player like, like Jennifer has. I mean, a huge part of it, I think was the, the design of it, the, the visual aesthetics of it. It, it was something very unlike anything we'd seen before, even though um, I think our memories have grown a little short and we don't, we don't really collectively remember what the actual first iPod was like, actually the first two where uh, they actually had physical buttons instead of just the, the elegant click wheel, the, Mm -hmm. the first, the first iPod had um, a total of five buttons and a wheel. And then the next version after that, they moved all the buttons. They, they wanted to, um, they wanted to get rid of clickable buttons and they wanted to make them out of the same material that they made the click wheel out of the, the turning wheel. So they pulled the buttons off of the perimeter of the circle and made them four buttons in a row above the click wheel part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it looked horrible. And it was really like, that's the sort of like black sheep of the, of the, the iPod world. Like no one mm-hmm. remembers that model. Wow. Because um, it, 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 had, it had four, ver- like four horizontal buttons in a, in a row underneath the screen, directly underneath the screen. And they had red backlights on their icons. Like it was, it was completely unlike any other iPod before or since. Hmm. Um, And no one ever shows that one uh, when they talk about the old iPod. And even the first one, the, the fact that it had physical buttons is something that hasn't really uh, stuck around much, but it, it, what it really did, it took, I mean, the, the original, the original tagline that, that Steve Jobs used to, to promote it, which he used when, when he unveiled it was a thousand songs in your pocket. And that was really, I think it was that concept that made it break through to everyone, not just music fans. They, everyone quickly realized that you could carry your entire music collection with you mm-hmm. wherever you went. Um, in terms of how, how uh, high quality it would sound, the, I mean, the, the first iPod was five gigs. It could only hold five gigs of, of material. Uh, and Apple calculated 1,000 songs fitting on it by one song equaling four minutes of audio right? Rip, ripped at 128 kbps. 
And and when you say 120 kbps, this is the the data rate. This is the rough quality uh, of of the file, right. and that's you know at the time was thought to be the very minimum you could get away with for something that was approaching again as we called it CD quality, right? A simulacrum exactly. of a CD, but not actually uh, not actually the same. Yeah, and that was actually chosen. That's that's yet another one of these sort of arbitrary standards. That was chosen because when uh, music compression, digital music compression or digital audio compression was was being worked on in the 80s, 128 kbps was the throughput of uh, the fastest ISDN line of the time. So, well, the, uh. right. So this is interesting because this is often we see this in the development of of music technology, right? So what you're telling mm-hmm. us, John, and it's something I'd forgotten, is that uh, you know, before cable modems, before people had had DSL, if you were going mm-hmm. to get uh, a broadband internet connection at a home or a small office, you got something called ISDN, and its yeah. maximum throughput was 128 kilobytes a second, which is tiny compared right. to even what we get on our phones these days. But at the mm-hmm. time, was considered blazing, and so you, you know they sort of adapted the MP3 to meet that mark in the same way that. Um, when choosing the length of CDs first generation to be 74 minutes, the standard they used was the ability to hold all of Beethoven's ninth symphony as a sort of Holy grail, because previously on LPs, you had to split it up, right? And you had to split it up over, over multiple sides of an LP. And they said, well, if we can make it so you can listen to this, you know, canonical, uh, widely, highly regarded, but also very long, for, for the for the period uh, piece of classical music, then we've accomplished something, right? And and right. you know, in the same way that thirty three and a third records spin at that speed is because you can sync it with uh, twenty four frames a second film, yeah. <laughs> right? It, and, it, it, and, it, it's and arbitrary on the one hand, but there's a technical reason on the other hand, but not always a reason you, you think. Right. I mean, even the the physical size of the compact disc was. Um, that came about because they they wanted something that related to the size of the compact cassette. They, right. Because the compact cassette had been a success, so they didn't want it to be much larger than that. So if you if you hold a compact cassette at a very specific angle related to a, a compact disc, you see that that there is a, a vague geometric relation between them. Ah, and I've never thought about it that way. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's I mean. It's also like the size of Star Wars figures. <laughs> right. There's something it's, it's that random of, of like an executive who said, I want Luke Skywalker to be this big. And they measured the distance between his fingers. And that's how big Star well, Wars action figures were. And it was and roughly it, the hmm. same size as a, as a uh, floppy disk. So a data storage right, medium right. used, a uh, magnetic data storage medium used in, in computers uh, at, in, at the same time in the, in the 70s and early 80s. So yeah. we're speaking to John Kennenberg, who is a director and chief curator of the Museum of Portable Sound in London, England. This is Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Paul Reeswindell. Also with us from uh, San Francisco is Jennifer Waits. And we're we're talking about the MP3 on the occasion of the 25th anniversary of its birth, which uh, was on the 14th of July, uh, 2020. And and John is responsible for putting together a virtual exhibition celebrating this birth. But it, it's a true museum exhibition, I would say. And that as I went through the formatting, feels like I'm being guided along 
on, on the web page as if I were walking through, right? So instead of coming across as an article or even a feature, it has the pacing and the and the um, and, and you know and 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 the feel really of, of as if I, I'm 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 at a museum. Um, so I, I, I'm I'm curious, you know, why did you, you know? Given that your museum, as we, as we talked about before, didn't remind folks is is actually you know an uh, an iPhone four uh, that mm-hmm. and you give people a physical guide to sort of touring the the auditory artifacts. Um, why in this case did you decide to to, to make this into a web page or, or to make a series of web pages as as it is? Mainly because of the the digital nature of of the MP three. I couldn't I couldn't with with it within my own. Um, mind i couldn't justify doing it in in any other format um most of most of the exhibitions that i've done in the museum so far have been uh things that could only be experienced on on the phone by listening to files or watching a video and um for this it seemed like the sort of the the like spiritual essence of the mp3 is so intrinsically connected to the internet mm-hmm. um particularly because of things like napster that it 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 only made sense to to just put it up on the web and and make it something that was was freely accessible and mainly also i, I mean the the exhibition sort of grew from one idea that i had which was originally in my mind the exhibition was just going to be one page and it was going to be the what what's now the the Tom's Diner Gallery in in the current show, and um, for anyone who may not have heard the urban legend, uh, Suzanne Vega's acapella version of Tom's Diner is often referred to as the first MP3 file, even though it um, more than likely wasn't. And the story goes that. The lead engineer, one of the lead engineers, Carl Heinz Brandenburg, who helped develop the uh, the algorithms for the the MP3. One version of the legend is that he heard Suzanne Vega's Tom's Diner on the radio while he was working on the MP3, and he thought this is the most perfect recording of a human voice in existence. This is what we should use as the test data for fine-tuning the mp3 algorithm he's told that story himself he's also said that he read an article that mentioned tom's diner being used as a test in uh for some other technology i can't can't remember now what it was um but he he claims it was a business week article that he Hmm. was reading and he thought okay if if it's good enough for them it's good enough for me and so he added it to the sort of playlist of, of test subjects. Uh, no one knows for sure exactly what role it had, but they tried to... Fraunhofer, the, the think tank research center in Germany that, that is responsible for creating the MP3, they later tried to enshrine this into truth by having a, a ceremony that they invited... Um, Suzanne Vega too. They presented her with a with a framed certificate of thanks for being the mother of the MP3. 
Wow. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but she, she didn't have that great of a time at the ceremony. Um, <laughs> Too many nerds. She, <laughs> no. Uh, from, from what I recall, and I, I may not have the, the exact person remembered correctly. It's either the president of Fraunhofer or a, I don't think it was Karl Heinz Brandenburg, but I, I, I think it was the president of the Institute was giving a speech and he made a claim that the MP3 sounded better than vinyl. Oh, and he asked for her, he, he asked her to, to, to acknowledge this. And she said, well, no, I, I don't agree with that at all. It's the MP3 sound really thin. They have no bass and, and the symbols are squishy. And, and apparently this man kind of lost it with oh. her publicly over it. Wow. And from that moment on, she said she wasn't going to uh, talk anymore at this event if she, if she didn't absolutely have to. And so she just sort of like walked away and hoped that the whole mother of the MP3 thing would kind of die off, but it never did. Oh my goodness. So they thought she would just be a celebrity musician. Right. And she, yeah, exactly. Um, so anyway, wow. because of, because of the, this sort of legend around that song. What I originally envisioned the show to be was uh, it would be three YouTube videos and a downloadable file, which is what this gallery is now in, in the current show. So the three YouTube videos, the, the first one is the original recording of Tom's diner acapella that she released. Then the second one is a, uh, a, a video of a piece by uh, an American composer named Ryan McGuire, who um, I think it was in 2013, he made this amazing sound piece where he managed to pull out all of the sound frequencies from the original recording of Tom's Diner that are lost when you compress it with MP3 compression. So all you hear in his piece is what you don't hear in an MP3. That is amazing. Of, of that song. And I, <laughs> that, that, was, that piece was actually uh, the first temporary exhibition in, in my museum when I opened it in 2015. And I asked him if, I, if he would let me include it in, in this exhibition on, on this webpage. And he was happy to, to do it, thank God. And um, so then the, the third video after that one, also in 2013, um, Suzanne Vega was invited to the Thomas Edison uh, National Park where the Edison Archive and where Edison's laboratory is preserved. And she made a wax cylinder recording of singing Tom's Diner a cappella. Wow, this so, is blowing my mind. I love this. Because <laughs> she, she did that kind of to... Uh, free herself of the the free that song of the the emotional baggage of the MP3. Um, so the the third video that I have is someone who owns one of the copies of the Edison cylinder that she made, and it's him playing the Edison cylinder. It's it's one of those YouTube videos of someone just putting a record on and showing the video of the record spinning with a wax cylinder. So it's this. Dude walks into frame, turns on the the his Edison phonograph, 
You hear Tom's diner on wax cylinder. He walks back in, shuts it off. So then the downloadable file, I took the sound from that YouTube video and converted it into a 128 kbps mp3 file that you can download illegally from um the exhibition as sort of <laughs> so you would now, yeah it's an mp3 of a wax cylinder is what right. that is yes and it's so to in my mind it's sort of playfully bouncing tom's diner back at the mp3 right right wow i it's just yeah that's so great which is your favorite <laughs> version of all of those well i mean if, if I were completely uh, self-centered, I would obviously say the MP3 of the wax cylinder, but I, the, her original recording is amazing. Yeah. I, I don't know if it is the, the greatest recording of a human voice ever. It's, it's not the purest because that that's one of the um, myths that Brandenburg thought that it was the purest because it's got lots of room tone and there's a synth in there and, you know, and she's real not... close. She's very closely mic'd. It sounds, you get a lot of yeah, mouth yeah. noises and such. Yes. I mean, yeah. it's, it's a, it's a gorgeous recording. Yes. Yeah. That's uh, a very I, personal feel to it. And yeah. very intimate. And I, my recollection, if my recollection is correct, that song became a hit in the U S not on its own, but because of, uh, uh, at the time, a not explicitly licensed remix. <laughs> yes. Yes. So it was turned. It was turned into more of a dance ambient dance track using just yep. the acapella vocal in England, imported back over to the U.S., at which point it becomes right. sort of a, a dance club hit, right? So it's already and, – and, and that's – again, that's probably in the in the 90s, I want to say, um, mm-hmm. before – you know, but, but, but roughly contemporaneous, maybe slightly ahead of when, uh, you know, the MP3 is born. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's – The song being Tom Steiner, I, I, yeah. Yeah, I it's kind of – It's a good of, case study. Great for your exhibit. I love that. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Um, so yeah, that that was that was where the uh, the idea for the exhibit really uh, began. Once I had that idea, and then I realized that um, that was it, it was it was great to probably about point oh 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 one percent of the world, because to just present that page without more context would be kind of you know. It would be me and like seventeen other nerds in, in the world <laughs> raising my hand. No one can see me. I'm yeah. raising my hand. Yeah, um, I know. Me too. So, hundred percent of the people on this on this interview. call. Yeah, but my my museum's mission has always been to try to um, make the act of listening uh, accessible to as many people as possible, and and to to communicate the importance of of listening attentively to as as many people as possible. Uh, even though I have to do it one person at a time. So I was really interested in being able to explain why this Tom's Diner page might be interesting to some people, to people who wouldn't immediately find it interesting. And once I started coming up with other things that I knew that I would need to talk about, like Napster, obviously, and um, I, I knew I would have to talk about Apple and, and the iPod and things like that. Sort of these general themes started to to coalesce, and um, I also I just I couldn't stop. Um, <laughs> I, I I never thought it would be as fascinating as it as it ended up being. I mean, because having lived through it, I 
I always found that that era to be kind of like sort of repetitive in a way. It was it was it was all about piracy and sound quality, piracy and sound quality, and that that was how I had experienced it, and mm-hmm. um, I didn't realize just how like how many characters there there would be in in the story and how many companies tried to be Napster and failed just as miserably. Like, why would you go through it after you've, I mean, it's, it's all these little companies around the world who like Kazaa, who, you know, as soon as, as soon as Napster gets in trouble, Kazaa springs up. Kazaa was another file sharing platform. uh, I believe related to the guys who invented Skype, if I'm not incorrect. Uh, Yeah. They're Estonian and I, I, right. And, and Skype is built was uh, at the time when you know, we're talking about many years ago, the early two thousands, built on similar technology that peer to peer idea. Uh, we mm-hmm. we have to turn back the clock to the early two thousands. The idea that we could have uh, a free uh, phone call at the time it wasn't video uh, or in multi party uh, you know uh, conference call on the internet uh, that mm-hmm. was a new idea and um, and the re- the way they made it free was the fact that. There didn't need to be extra infrastructure. Didn't need to be big uh, computers, uh, servers out there conducting the calls. They would just direct your two computers to talk to each other. Again, a brand new idea in the early 2000s, which also was related to the idea that your two computers are talking to each other to exchange MP3 files. So uh, the reason we're talking about MP3 files and wrapping this all up is we're talking about uh, the 25th anniversary of the MP3, uh, the birthday, 25th birthday, which was uh, the 14th of July, 2020. And our guest is John Kennenberg, who is the director and chief curator of the Museum of Portable Sound. We're here on Radio Survivor, where we are always here for the love of, of radio and sound. And John... I'd like to tie one loose end from a little earlier, and then we can we can kind of uh, talk a little bit more about you know listening and listening intently. And I know I know Jennifer will have a lot of questions about 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 your work and how, and how this all comes together. But one thing you mentioned is that you know the iPod is sort of pivotal in the in the uh, the growth and 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 and, and uh, you know the pervasiveness uh, ultimate pervasiveness of the MP3. But you also mentioned that that Apple. Uh, abandons the MP3 mm-hmm. what very did, quickly. What? What did? So, what does that mean that they that they abandon the MP3? <laughs> I, I I don't know if I if I have an actual like logical answer to that. Um, w- well, in in practical what terms, it, what does it mean that they abandon the MP3? Um, it it means that they moved on to the technology that that Fraunhofer had developed since developing the mp3 <laughs> which was uh, uh a vast improvement on on the quality and so- file size of the mp3 so they were able to fit more music in in less space that sounded better yeah the, fi- uh, the file name's usually called aac for lack of a better right. way adaptive something advanced encoding i, I don't even know yeah. off the top of my head uh and it's used a lot right but i think yeah what's, what's interesting to me though is you almost never no one will ever say to you, "Hey, I'll make an I'll make an AAC of that." Right. <laughs> right? Well, yeah. And are we are we going to celebrate its anniversary? Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. It, it's highly that, doubt it. Is that you know? Um, and and I and there's another reason though that 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 they went with this other file format, 
right? There's another key reason, I think, why they went to this file format, especially when they opened up the iTunes music store and you could begin, uh, at the time, uh, heralded 99 cents for a song. Yes, um, and that would be uh, digital rights management. And what is a digital uh, rights management? That is uh, essentially copy protection. Mm-hmm. So that meant you could not uh, share your files anymore. So once, even even though you were allegedly buying digital music, you were in fact renting it because you couldn't give it away to anyone else. You couldn't copy it. Uh, you couldn't even really make your own backup copy of it, uh, technically. Mm-hmm. So uh, you were you were renting, and that the the shift from the MP3 to AAC and DRM paved the way for streaming to become the new norm because once the the consuming public became comfortable with the idea of renting their music they didn't even need the files anymore they they just needed the connection so now the idea of a personal music collection doesn't even exist the the closest we get to it is making some playlists on a website that we'll lose as soon as that website goes out of business. Or as soon so, as you can no longer pay for access or, right, right. you know, depending on what it is or right. You know, um, you know, you lose a month in there uh, and, and it moves on. Of course we've seen, you know, I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole and we've talked about it here survivor, you know, we've seen <laughs> of course in, in that interim, right. There's been a revival of interest in vinyl, uh, records. There's been a revival in interest in cassettes, and I've predicted, and I will continue to protect that <laughs> uh, you're going to see a revival in interest in CDs. Uh, you know, again, as oh, I thought you were going to say mini disc. No, I if only, <laughs> if only, but but you right. can still buy a CD player. In fact, I just yeah. bought a new car, um, a 2020 model, and was very surprised to find that standard was a CD player. I, I was I didn't expect it. Oh, uh, yeah. It, it's a Subaru. I mean, so it's not even, you know, I didn't buy an arcane uh, car. It, you know, it has CarPlay. It has Android, you know, uh, auto. It has, you know, Sirius Satellite Radio. It has Pandora and Spotify built in. But it also, it, it still has a CD player. Um, well, you can buy plenty of CDs for cheap. Well, that's, I think, stores. what it is, is that if you're a broke, you know, a broke 25-year-old and, and you don't want to spend 25 or $30 on, on that vinyl release, uh, you know, the, the $1, $5, $10 CD starts to look pretty good, you know, and still carries enough of the tangibility, you know, to be attractive. We'll see if my predictions bear out or not, but I'll, I'll, I'll let that one lie. Cause we're mostly, t- <laughs> we're talking about other I things. Know. I know. Um, I could go down another rabbit, you know, hole we could go. Yeah. It's a, it's a whole rabbit hole that we, we can go down another time, but you know, so I want to talk a little bit more about your work, John Kennenberg, because you know, you, you, you come to this, um, you know, as a scholar and artist, right? Uh, you know, this is, uh, this, this is part of a larger trajectory, I think, in, in, in your, in your, in your sort of artistic and, and scholarly development, you know, what is it that, you know, what is it that you, you study and, and, and how did that, why did that cause you to create the Museum of, of Portable Sound? Uh, well, um, I've been working with sound in multiple ways for, for a long time, um, in my creative practice and, and 
in other things that I that I wouldn't necessarily uh, include in the the pompous term creative practice. Uh, so I've sound sound has been really important in in my life in in multiple ways. Uh, but I'm also really, really interested in museums. I've been obsessed with museums since I was very, very young. And for a long time, the the main project that I uh, concentrated on as an artist was recording sounds of museums. And hmm. so I was really interested in the way museums sound and whether or not the sound of a museum has any impact on how we react to a museum environment and, and whether or not our experience of, of art or science changes depending on what we're hearing at the same time. And, this is, oh, sorry. I, I'm thinking of like a really random connection um, with baseball coming back in the United States. They're yes. playing they're now having to play sounds of the audience that isn't there, yes. uh, which makes me think of what you're talking about. Like how does the ambient sound affect your experience and the, even the expected ambient sound? Like, I Absolutely. guess we often expect a museum to be fairly quiet. Is that what yeah. you found when well, you were recording museums? No, no, not at all. I, well, I mean, people expect it to be quiet, but, but they're not. Right. Um, and the this this whole notion of of the fact that the museum needs to be quiet is is all uh, kind of a, a result of uh, once once museums started to become public when when they when they became public institutions, which meant that they were owned by usually owned by the government in some way, they they sort of took on this mantle of being a way to educate the messes. And the trend at the time was towards silent contemplation. And that, that was considered the way that a learned person learns was to be silent and read. And because museums developed out of a visual tradition of looking at objects, um, sound was very quickly rejected within within that experience although when you go back to the the forerunners of museums which were the sort of cabinets of curiosity in the 15th and 16th centuries um and those were things that were usually owned by royalty uh and you would have like one crazy guy who owned everything who would personally give you a tour around and he would hand you the objects and you could shake them and listen to them and touch them and taste them and, and uh, do whatever you wanted. And sound was definitely part of that experience. And uh, that whole uh, one crazy guy showing you around kind of resonates with me a bit and, and what I do in my work. Um, it's like the best possible museum experience. <laughs> well, I, I, I don't, I don't know if I would go that far. But but thank you. Um, I, I like how you you describe sound that you're kind of showcasing sounds as objects of culture, and yeah. it um, also makes me think about this kind of renewed interest in sound studies and academia. Yes, well, there's there are a lot of people studying sound now. Sound got super hip starting in the 2000s, and and now it's sort of really uh, 
it's starting to become well, very well established in, in academia now. And um, I, but still what tends to drive people's interest in sound is music. When, when you mention the word sound to people, almost, almost, 100% the response will always be some question related to music. When people ask me what I do who don't know me and I say I have a museum, well, oh, what's in the museum? Well, or what's it called? Uh, the Museum of Portable Sound. So what kind of music do you have? You know, that's, that's usually the response. And when I say no, I, I think about sound as culture really rather than, than music. A lot of people don't know how to respond to that and i think it's because we're we're so we're such a visual culture for one thing that we've gotten to the point where our conception of sound is uh not 100 but close to 100 focused on music because music is ha has become so easy to see it's sound that's really easy to see particularly post uh, MTV where, you know, the, the idea of music as something you watch became so widespread that now we don't think of sound as anything but listening to music because music is, music is exciting and it's, it's addictive and, and it makes you, it reminds you of when you were young and, you know, music is is the the thing that we think of when we think about our ears mostly we think about well, and, and you think about young people consuming and discovering music on youtube and that yeah. just brings everything you're saying forward to present day yeah. I, but my my perspective is well what happens if we take these sounds that everyone has been recording since the dawn of um of being able to record sound and sampling and, and turning into music. What if we take those sounds and, and do one of the things that John Cage said that people often quote, but don't really believe or listen to, which is uh, let sounds be themselves. Mm -hmm. So if you let sounds be themselves and you think about them, not as source material to make music with, but as a thing in and of itself, then what is this sound and what connections does it have to the rest of the world? And, and the, the way, how do people experience that sound? What, what, what does that sound trigger within them? Other that is maybe something that isn't musical. And once you start doing that, you start to, you start to realize that there's this massive world of, of culture that has been completely and utterly ignored by museums for for sure which is all of these amazing sounds and and banal sounds that that a lot of people ignore that are awesome like uh when the when the like lowercase mu movement started in the uh in the late 90s and the early 2000s and everybody was making albums of the the sounds of their refrigerator like refrigerators sound awesome you know um, and what, what does that mean? Like when suddenly the sound of a refrigerator makes you think of home, when, when you think about it in terms of 
the sound itself and what it does and how it makes a human being feel to me, that's much more exciting than, uh, than just using it to, you know, fill up your sampler and, and mess around making music like that. Yeah. That's to me, that's something that has become so commonplace. It used to be magical. Sampling used to be completely magical. And now it's something that anybody can do, really. Like, you can do it on your phone very easily. Um, and so that's obviously, I'm guessing, part of the reason why you've wanted this to be a museum that people had to visit with you in person. Because you mentioned right. earlier you didn't want people coming in and sampling. Um, well, so how, do, how does that change things now when you can't necessarily take somebody on the tour of the museum in person during a pandemic. Yeah. Well, now I've, I've started doing visits online um, over video chat. And um, one, one really amazing thing that's, that's happened uh, is there's a, a small theater in a small town in Minnesota, uh, New London, Minnesota, that a, a colleague of mine, that I worked with on a, on a project like 10 years ago. Um, she's taken over this theater. Her name's Bethany Lactorin, and she's a musician and, and a designer. And she and her husband have, have uh, taken over this, uh, a very tiny theater space in, in new London. And she's set up this thing that she, this series that she's, she's calling art by appointment. So it's, uh, people book time to come in and have an art experience for one or two people at a time. And she invited me to be sort of the, the test subject for, for this concept at this theater. So she went through my gallery guide because my museum also has some physical objects in its collection. And she realized she had a bunch of the same stuff that, that I have in the museum. She had she managed to have easy access to um, uh, plinths, like um, stands to put objects on in museums. She found a bunch of those. So she's built this sort of physical manifestation of the Museum of Portable Sound inside this theater. Nice. <laughs> you, when you walk in, you walk through these objects, and then at the end of the objects, there's a table with a computer on it, and the visitor then has a, pr a private meeting with me over video chat hmm. where I them sounds from my museum. And so that's, I'm, I'm doing my own video chat and then I'm doing stuff through this, uh, the new London little theater. And um, it's, it's really changed the way that people relate to the museum. It's, it's not as freeing as it used to be. I think like it's, it's not so much of an, of an independent, uh, experience for them because I'm, they ask me for something to, to play. Like they ask me to play things for them. And so there's, there's a little bit of a separation there. Um, because in the but, past you would hand over your, yeah, I would give them a phone with all the sounds on phone. it and a book that had all of the object labels in it. But now, so now I'm like reading the object labels out loud to them and then playing the sounds for them. So it's not, it's not quite as spontaneous and, and not as wandering as, as it used to be, but it's, 
in some ways it's, it's an improvement, I think, because one of the things that I have learned about this museum in the four years that I was doing it before the coronavirus started is that the, to me, the, the thing that really makes it a museum is that meeting between me and the person and the conversations that we have about sound and listening during their visit. It's the conversations where I think the, the person who's visiting really starts to, to have meaning being made for them personally. Like they, they start to, if, if they're not familiar with um, the world of sound or the, the world of listening closely, they really almost, almost unanimously, they start to think of all these important sounds that they've experienced in their life that they never really stopped to think about that much. And now they suddenly realize like, oh my God, I need to listen to the world a little closer. And it's, that really only happens because we're two people talking about it. And so that still happens very much so in, in the online, uh, on, in the online visits now, uh, because it's based around the, this idea of two people chatting. So um, it's, it's a different experience, but I, I think it's equally as, as um, valid and, and valuable. And obviously you can reach more people now. Paul and right. I can visit your museum from exactly. the United States. So that would be awesome. that's a wonderful <laughs> gift. <laughs> and the museum we're talking about is the Museum of Portable Sound, uh, located yes. in the UK, but, but now uh, also available to people who are around the world. Um, John, I'm going to ask you a very uh, stupid question, so I apologize, nope. but I have to ask it. Uh, no stupid why an iPhone 4? <laughs> why is that? Why is that the 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 repository, the public repository? Uh, you know, I, I can imagine. I mean, I really, I can imagine somebody interacting with a computer or a tablet or um, you know some, some other sort of device. Yeah, uh, why that one? Well, uh, it once once I tell you the story, it's it's going to you're going to realize that your question was not stupid. My answer is very stupid. Um, so what happened was uh, I knew that I was going to be moving to the UK to do a PhD. And three months before I was going to move, my cell phone contract ran out and I needed a phone because I still had three months left in the U S and up until that point, I was still using uh, a, um, a a dumb phone, a like non-smartphone. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I don't think it was flipping. Okay. I think, I think it, it was... Uh, sliding? Ooh, I don't remember what... Yeah, it was probably sliding in, in some yeah. manner. Um, so I thought, okay, fine. I'll take the plunge. I'll, I'll buy a, a smartphone finally. And what I'll do is I'll I'll get a pay-as-you-go here for these three months, and then I'll just get the phone cracked when I move over to London and use use it as my main phone there. And, well, it turns out that the company that I got my iPhone 4S from is one of the only uh, phone providers in America whose phones cannot be cracked in the U.K., <laughs> So 
Uh, and by cracked, you mean you can't take it to the UK and get it to work with uh, some other carrier, some other SIM card, right? And right, right. Essentially, Usually, it's a brick uh, in the UK. Yeah. So uh, I spent about a week and a half when I first moved here trying to uh, trying to figure out how to, how to get it done, begging and pleading with with uh, a lot of uh, they were all men with men on on streets. Um, asking them, please do something. I, I need a phone. Uh, and no one could. And I finally con- confirmed it on the internet that it was in fact impossible. So the phone went into uh, a desk drawer. And then when I finally got the idea for my museum, it, it happened very quickly, but I, I didn't really start thinking about specifics until about six months in uh, one day I was, I was walking to Tate modern to make recordings of it for my PhD for what I thought was my real PhD. And I realized that if I was interested in making a museum where people listen to stuff, it didn't have to be in a building. It could just be something that plays sounds at them. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, well, okay, I'll have to get an iPod to test it. And then I thought, oh, I have that phone. <laughs> and, 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 so, and right. And, and of course, if you had bought an iPod in, uh, you know, nine years ago, eight years ago, five years ago, even, it's essentially just an iPhone without a phone. <laughs> right. 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 The, the, the distinction, the difference between, say, an iPhone 4S and an iPod of the same generation is just one has a, has a radio that will talk to cell towers and one doesn't. <laughs> exactly. And so when I, when I created the museum, um, Yes, the, there is power in the battery. Here it is, right here. Uh, oh, we're looking I, at it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, when I when I decided to create the museum on this phone, I also decided that I would no longer uh, connect it to any form of network, uh, mobile or internet mm. of any kind, and I would no longer upgrade the system software or anything. So, this is an iPhone 4S frozen in time from November of 2015. Some amazing details of it are it, it, it's, it uses the original, um, well, not original, the second iPod connector, uh, the, the big honking wide one, which I, I'm blanking on the actual name right. of now. Yes. Uh, the one after Firewire. Um, and it also has a headphone jack. And not only does it have a headphone jack, it has a headphone jack on the top. Like Apple moved the headphone jack to the bottom for the last few phones. that, And then so did everybody else. I've got an LG recent model, but the headphone jack is on the bottom. So when, when I hand this to people now, I say, it's got a headphone jack. They all try to plug it into the bottom. Yeah. Um, which is hilarious. I mean, this this thing now is a museum object itself, and so. it's nine years old ish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. But it's it's a dinosaur now. I mean, it's, <laughs> everyone says, "Oh my god, it's so tiny!" Like it was kind of big when it came out, you know. So, so uh, yeah. <laughs> so you know, and the other thing, you know, here, you know, John, we're talking on the radio. We're also talking on a podcast exactly and it's interesting 
I had a conversation. I work in podcasting, as, as many long-term listeners know. And I had a conversation with other industry people the other day. It was just, it was, you know, a, a conference call. And somebody, f- for some reason, pointed out the sort of, by the way, that podcasts are named after an iPod. And there were several people on the call who's, who said, Really? Oh, I never thought of that. <laughs> I was, and I will tell you, I was taken aback. But they—they they are folks who were who were uh, either newer to the industry or or you know significantly younger than I. Folks who who very possibly have heard of this thing called an iPod, but never had one and never put their hands on one. Yeah. Uh, well, and, know, and podcasting was was. Uh, I mean, the the urban legend is that it was created by an MTV VJ. So. Right, right, right. Adam Curry, uh, who, yeah. who, you know, is not, you know, necessarily the creator, but was uh, no. there at the beginning. And he was, well, he knew the people. He knew the person, mm-hmm. Dave Weiner, who is, who created the standard to allow these MP3 files to be distributed easily um, yeah. and took him up on the offer to create sort of that, that, that first uh, podcast. So that sort of is how it goes. But yes, and he was an MTV uh, VJ as well. Um, but he's, the thing- he's also been in, uh, sorry. No, I, go ahead. Uh, go ahead, please. He's, he's also uh, the first recipient of, uh, the Museum of Portable Sound's Lifetime Achievement Award for contributions to portable sound, uh, but he still hasn't picked up the certificate that we, that we <laughs> Adam made for Adam Curry, him. if you're listening. I, I, I tweeted it at him, and uh, he didn't respond, but a bunch of his followers did, and they all accused me of either wanting to kill him or uh, of being homosexual. Wow. So, um, well, yeah. I, my understanding, this is all for the podcast only. Uh, my understanding, I mean, I think his politics have gotten fairly fringy over the years. So, um, <laughs> yeah, that's, that, that's a good word. <laughs> uh, you know, so that might, that might have something to do with it. Um, but going back to the fact that the, the podcast, uh, <laughs> was named after the iPod and yeah. it is true today that the vast majority of podcasts are distributed still as MP3 files that through yes. all of the various, yes. there's, you know, we have, as we mentioned, AAC files, which is what you buy still. If you buy music from the iTunes music store, um, you know, we have other file formats that have come uh, through, through over time. We won't name the litany and, and, as a podcast doesn't necessarily specify only MP3 files podcasts only specify that it's an audio file that you can uh, set up through something called an RSS feed that, that a, a podcast player knows is there and can automatically download, which was something uh, revolutionary in the early two thousands when certainly there was audio online, but if you wanted to, you know, go s- listen to a show, you had to remember to go check that website every so often podcasting allowed you to have an app that would do all the work for you. Um, But it's interesting to me that nevertheless, the MP3 persists as the format of choice. Um, Again, abandoned by Apple (laughs) for their own store, but supported of course, by, by the, the most common MP3 player, as we would call them in the time and the birth of, of podcasting being, uh, generally written down to being like 2004 ish. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, it's, it's interesting that, uh, that even though it's technically dead, 
the MP3 is still around and there's even there's competing technologies that failed miserably against the MP3 that are also still around in some form or another too. And this is, uh, I'm sort of winding my way around to one of the more interesting things that I, that I think I've, uh, managed to figure out in putting together this exhibition. Cause one of, one of the questions I've, I've always thought about is what the hell was going on at Sony when the iPod came out? Like Sony was portable sound. The mini disc. That's what was going on at Sony when the iPod well, came out. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and honestly, that's, I, I think that, uh, I don't think it's mini disc. I think it's, the technology that Sony developed to make mini disc possible. Right. The, the, the encoding schema, which, which yeah. I will, I know the name of a track, A T R A C. Unfortunately. And I, I, I love this. the fact that when you say it out loud, uh, it sounds like eight track. Right. I know. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I, th- I think what it, because the, the first Walkman that was MP3 compatible wasn't until 2003. Yeah. So, um, and it was all the stopgap stuff, right? I mean, so around that same time, they developed uh, a media player that would plug into your computer by MP3 so that you could very easily, I put that in quotes because it wasn't always easy, uh, convert your MP3s to mini disc, right? So you could use, use your mini disc player essentially as an MP3 player, but kind of. With a little bit of that CD-like technology, because you could fill up a mini disc full of MP3s and put it on a shelf. Right. And as somebody who has way too many of these stupid mini discs laying around, um, they're more likely to work <laughs> now, twenty years later, than than that CDR. But that was the other stopgap technology, right? As you could burn yeah. your MP3s directly to CDRs and play them in like a, a, a disc man that could read the MP3 file. So you could have basically a CD that instead of having 74 minutes of music had, had uh, d- dozens of hours of music um, as well. Right. I think Sony made those as well, but right. It was a while before they decided to make their own MP3 player in quotes. Right. And I think it's because they um, not only, not only were they hoping that the MP, the, the mini disc would finally catch on, but I think it's because they developed a track in house so they had invested all of this R&D into A-Track. And I think what happened when the iPod came out was Sony just thought, well, why are we going to let this inferior encoding technology, you know, like sully our devices? Yeah. You know, they, they should, uh, why, why, why doesn't A-Track... Uh, become as popular or more popular than the MP3. And I think it took them a full two years of watching Apple crush them to death before they realized that they had to give in. Um, and Sony had point, a music store. Already. They had their yeah. own music store that sold files in this A-Track format. And those uh, yep. the Sony MP3 players would could play the A-Track files as well. Right. And the A-Track files had the similar uh, digital rights management that you would get from the Apple store. So you had the same kind of yep. issues with moving them from device to device, et cetera. It was, it was a real pain. Um, you know, you said one thing in passing, and I think it's a great place for us to close out. You know, you said, you know, uh, the MP3 is dead. Mm-hmm. Why do you, why did why did you say that? Um, because technically it it is. Um, 
the MP3 was not an open standard when it when it was first born. It was something that was licensed to corporations. And in um, 2017, Fraunhofer, who was the, the licensor, announced that they were no longer licensing the MP3, which meant that it was dead. But but um, also that means that they, in part, it, it basically passes into the public domain now. Right, right. Which it, I mean... For all intents and purposes, it was already in the right. It was, except if you wanted to create an actual commercial product, right? You 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 had to in in the United States, yeah, Yeah. in the United States. So being very specific there, uh, you know, you had to still pay royalties to this German research institute, which actually held the uh, the patent on on the MP3. So so it's dead, and yet. Uh, it's experiencing, I still think, a fairly vivid afterlife. <laughs> like, uh, oh yeah, you no, know. I, I mean, uh, even even a track's still around. They use it in in the PS4. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, that, really. Okay, see, I, I didn't, that was something I didn't know. It's not like um, I don't think I don't think the MP3 is ever going to fully go away as long as we're using computers. Yeah, uh, because it's. I mean. Like like you mentioned earlier, the when you when you say you you're going to rip a digital version of something, you say I'll give you an MP3 file. You don't say I'll give you an MP4 or I'll give you an AAC. You know, uh, MP3 has become what Walkman or Coke or you know all yeah. of these Kleenex, like all of these brands that their brand becomes the object, like. That's that's what MP3 is. MP3 means digital sound now. Yeah, for better uh, or worse. Even though, yeah, f- even though uh, barely, like very few people are still using it, but it is what it is. It is. It's sort of like what you said before. That's why maybe we won't be having a 25th anniversary celebration of AAC. <laughs> no. <laughs> Somebody yeah, will. I, the, guy, the, the person who owns the patent will. But otherwise, and, and of course, that's yeah. many people own that patent, but that's another rabbit hole. Uh, John John Cannonberg, <laughs> uh, you are the director and chief curator of the Museum of Portable Sound. We've, we've been talking about your museum and, of course, your online exhibition, MP3 at 25, which is hosted at your museum's website. We have many more. We have links to all of this uh, at our website, radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. Thank you so much for joining us on Radio survivor thank you both this this was incredibly fun i i hope it was uh okay <laughs> oh it's amazing uh, this is this is what fascinating we this yes. is what we learned uh, we are uh, we are the, a particular type of radio and sound nerds and we now go out of our way to just find like-minded souls i think so every time i just saw a tweet that's how I came upon came upon and that someone retweeted what you had tweeted, uh, John, for about the three twenty five. I can't remember who. Yeah. And I've learned what I've learned now. I just need to be impulsive because if I had filed that information away, I'd have forgotten about it. And so in that yeah. moment, whatever it was, I, I went to the website. I looked at it. I said, "Where do I find this person? How do I email them?" <laughs> well, I'm, I'm shocked. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but I'm I'm shocked that there hasn't been more uh, like media coverage of this. Really, it's weird. There's been very little. Yeah, I mean, it, in part, but you know, it just hasn't been in the right outlet. Probably, you know, it's one of those things that it, if it like if Gizmodo or Wired did a 
quick story on it, then it would be, you just have to get that yeah. right seed. I mean, because well, I deal with a little bit. The I, PR I, I'm world. not talking about my exhibition. I'm, yeah. I'm talking about the, the MP3 anniversary. Oh, and that's what I mean. Yeah. 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 In general, I think just the, the right it's, tech reporter or whomever or right influencer hasn't uh, decided right. to say anything about it as, as it is. Um, yeah, I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to any of our previous shows. I suspect you'll enjoy them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we, we, two, two episodes ago, we were way deep into the early days of internet radio. Uh, this yeah, week, I, I don't know if you're aware of UbuWeb. It seems like you might. As oh, a, yes. Okay. Oh, yes. As a sound studies guy. Um, we, yes. you know, we talked with, with uh, Kenneth Goldsmith for okay. – nearly two hours i think um again way deep in a lot of the same issues we're talking about and listening and sound um and i think you know what was really uh, entertaining about that he's you know somewhat more prominent than than we are uh is you know he emailed us how did i not know about all this other stuff that you're basically doing these podcasts about which to (laughs) me is very satisfying that we're that we're helping to at least in, in our little worlds um spread some uh yeah there's so much to explore in sound yeah Yeah. um it's pretty it's pretty incredible um i was listening to uh, kyle barnett is a friend and he's been on the show and um he talks about the early history of the recording industry and Mm. i just heard him in an author talk and and he was talking about some of these early recordings of things like sound effects and you know and it makes me think about your museum. Like there are all these things that have been recorded that people don't often think about that, you know, early sounds of motor cars. Um, and yeah, so many of those stories. Oh, go ahead. The, the okay laughing record. Are you familiar with that? No, that was the, the first ever novelty record. Um, and it, it was, uh, all, all it is, is a man, starting to play something on a tuba and a woman laughing at him. And then he starts to laugh and they laugh for about six minutes. <laughs> the full side of a, of, of, of a 78 disc. Amazing. Yeah. And um, it, it's been turned into uh, cinematic cartoons, like the soundtrack to cinematic cartoons twice. Hmm. Uh, it was the highest selling record of its time. It spawned, a ton of spinoffs. Like there was a cottage industry of records of people laughing. Yeah. For years because of that record. Like, I'm sure it's, it's a real insane. inspiration for Spike Jones. Um, it's, yes, yeah, there's some, yeah. some deep memory. Yeah. I must've heard, maybe I heard it or something like it on Dr. Demento. I'm sure. Oh, yeah, oh right, God. Yes. 